Hello, and welcome back to Engaging History. This is episode number five, this episode title, Hellenic Greece. My name is Christopher Kinsella. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. The podcast is my opinion and interpretation of historical events that I will discuss. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. The purpose of the podcasts in general are to discuss history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the world around you, but in a way that is understandable, interesting, and engaging. So today, again, we're going to look at, in this fifth podcast, looking at how the ancient Greece thousands of years ago is still very much all around us today, not only within the United States, but the world as well, as I will demonstrate, but specifically within the United States, how our modern day democracy was adapted from that of ancient Greece. So in terms of ancient Greece itself, when I say Hellenic, Hellenic means this first podcast on Greece is really looking at Greece internally what was going on within their city-states and maybe right outside their adjacent area. The next section, Hellenistic Greece, is when Greece and their information and way of life is essentially transferred around the greater Mediterranean world. And we'll see why that was, and specifically in this case, the one lone individual who was responsible for it. So looking at ancient Greece, one of the first characteristics we're going to look at is the idea of the poli, P-O-L-I-S. That simply is a translation meaning city-state, but it is a term that we also have adapted here in the United States in our English language as well. When we see P-O-L-I-S, we generally think of something urban or city-related, metropolitan, city names, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, the words used as a suffix. And again, as I say, that's a derivative from ancient Greece. We're also looking at Greece within that idea of the poli. What was it, this little idea of a city-state? It's the first recognizable sub-organization of people. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Chris, just in the last podcast, you were talking about more specific groups, Assyrians and Persians, and before that, Sumerians, and on and on. Correct. That is an entire nation of people. Here with ancient Greece, we're looking at individual suborganizations of people that could be as different from one another as though they were living in different parts of the world. And we'll see how that uh, fleshes out in a moment. But what the poli did for ancient Greece is it represented peace, order, prosperity, and honor. Their city-state, where you were born in, meant so much to your upbringing and your well-being. We're looking at a maximum of roughly 5,000 inhabitants within these city-states. So again, not massive in modern times, but large in terms of the ancient world. In respect to their military, Greece was known to their individual city-states to not have standing armies by and large. Most of them were volunteer. By now, because of what they learned from the Assyrians and the Sumerians before them, there's now a common use of helmets and shields, which will be commonplace all the way through to the 21st century. What we're also seeing within ancient Greece, though, is that organization was just as important as courage. It was one thing to be a courageous soldier, but what good is that if there's no organization, no plan to the objectives that have to be obtained?
What I'm going to focus on then more so here is their forms of government. To Greece, we take our hats off to how many forms of government we learned from them. And I'll mention some of them in just a moment. That, again, was a huge plus that we learned from the ancient Greeks. But remember, again, going back to that first podcast, for every plus, there's always that potential minus. And in this case, where the problem was is that the city-states, their forms of government were constantly in a state of flux or change. It was not unknown within one person's lifetime for their own individual city-state government to have different forms. That can be a weakness. But what Greece sought to do, why did they experiment with so many forms of government? Well, yes, it is a weakness, but before you blame them for fixing something that maybe didn't need to be fixed, remember that they were trying to answer the essential question is where does authority come from? Where and how power was obtained? That's what they we're looking to try to answer. That was their goal. So the typical forms of government that we see, number one was monarchy, the idea of one ruler. Of course, we see different forms of that today. Uh, England, of course, is perhaps one of the most uh, world's well-known monarchs. Even though it is a constitutional monarchy, it is still a monarch ruled, ruled by a royal family. They also experimented with aristocracy ruled by a class of people. Slightly different, but very similar to oligarchy, a third one, landed wealth. The fourth one, and of course the one that ties home closest to us, that we hold dear to our hearts, democracy, which I'll flesh out more later on. That, of course, is a government by the people that are to be governed. The other two is not, again, to be looked at lightly. The fifth one, the fourth was democracy, and the fifth one being tyranny. Obviously, tyranny, we know what that means, meaning one leader ruling through fear and terror. If I'm speaking to any male married listeners, you know what I mean now that we're married. No, I'm just kidding you. Um, don't repeat that to my wife. No, but tyranny, again, one leader ruling through fear and terror. The sixth one. And for tyranny, of course, we're also looking at an example, of course, would be North Korea, uh, before that, Libya, right? But with anarchy, that's the sixth one. And you might say, well, no, 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 Chris, anarchy really is the absence of government. Exactly. That is still an entity, though, that the people within an organization have to deal with. If there is no form of government, you are in a state of anarchy. Greece recognized this, and more importantly, they recognized the danger of this. Now, I would like you to think a moment. Where in the world today do we find anarchy? Yes, we see it in some African countries, specifically in the northeastern or far eastern sections of the, on the continent of Africa. Yes. But anarchy also exists a lot more pervasively and more threateningly close to you and I. Yes, to the United States. Think about it. Anarchy is really what the United States exists in, as does every country on the globe. Think about it. If a country were to invade us from the north or from the south, or a another country land an amphibious invasion to the United States, folks, there's no 911 we can call. You might say, I don't know, you got the, you got the United Nations, okay, admittedly. 
How do you think the Ukrainians here in 2020 feel about the United Nations being the 911 for them? At this point, Russia has still occupied much territory in the eastern half of the Ukraine that Russia has claimed for itself left roughly six years ago, and it's still holding on to that to this day. They, that, folks, is your physical proof that the world exists in anarchy. Yes, the United Nations would like to try to eliminate and calm that fear, but the reality is an aggressor nation is not necessarily easily checked, even by more powerful nations on other parts of the planet. So anarchy, fear of the absence of government, very real. So those are the six forms of government, again, that Greece will experiment with. And that's not to take away, though, that for Greece in terms of the arts. The Greek people are a very exacting people. I had an opportunity to see this twice as I traveled to, to modern-day Greece, and it's exemplified, there, what I mean by an exacting people, is it's exemplified by the structures that they build throughout the country of Greece that I had the opportunity to see. The pinnacle of this exactness, of course, is in or on the Acropolis. The Acropolis, Acropolis simply means high point. And the Acropolis in ancient Athens, still to this day in Athens, obviously, there's 13 high points within the city-state or the modern-day city of Athens. When I say the high points, these are areas where they would feel the best or the most security from a neighboring city-state or the neighboring country to the east. Remember Persia, who tried attacking Athens twice, that these are the individuals that they wanted to protect themselves from. They went to the highest point. So it's no surprise that they would put their prized possessions there. If you ever had the opportunity to travel to ancient, to, to modern day Greece, excuse me, yeah, take a time machine back thousands of years ago, but to travel to Greece and to see the Acropolis, you'll notice you're not exactly on the tallest point within downtown Athens. There is one point that is technically higher, but it's not large enough to have done any kind of real building on. So that's the reason the ancient Athenians chose this particular high uh, mountainous type structure in order to build these government buildings and these buildings as a tribute to the Greek goddess of wisdom and war, Athena. The paramount structure on that, of course, is the Parthenon. That's where the ancient Greeks felt as though that they had not only built a perfect triangle, but in some cases actually built a more difficult one. We see papyrus documents from ancient Greece that discuss this idea of the triangle, how difficult it was to build, but there was no clear evidence left behind of where was this triangle. And I'm speaking to you as somebody that traveled across all parts of the Acropolis looking for what the ancient Greeks had left behind as the perfect triangle. And nowhere could I actually see it. And I was not alone. Even Greeks that had been there, born and raised there, couldn't see it. It wasn't until modern technology came out that they figured out where and how the ancient Athenians had created this perfect triangle and leave it to the Greeks to pull something like this off. And I mean this totally as a compliment. You see, the Greeks don't believe in hubris. Hubris is the pounding of your chest. How, how good am I? The Greeks abhorred that. If you're good, other people will recognize it, but you don't pound your chest yourself. They're not about self-aggrandizement, not at all. So they're going to be subtle 
with their tributes to the Greek goddess of wisdom and war, Athena. And subtlety, boy, they really hit that one, that nail on the head. Reason being is that all of the columns that, that are part of the exterior of the Parthenon, every one of those columns leans slightly inward. None of those columns are standing perfectly straight up, perfectly vertical. They all lean slightly inward. And if you were to put a laser beam, at this, as this was done, at the center of those columns and shine that laser beam into the air, all those columns come together to form a, you guessed it, a perfect triangle. So who really did create the more difficult triangle? The ancient Greeks or the ancient Egyptians? I've given you the evidence. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions based on that. That said, let's also then look at the Lyric Age of Greece. In the Lyric Age, we get to the height of Greek literacy, but it's also the height of Greek colonization. If you had an have an opportunity to go onto Google Maps or any other type of map that you can access from the internet, you can see that at a glance, it looks as though there's a lot of open water in what we call the Aegean Sea between modern-day Greece and then their neighbor Persia, modern-day Turkey, to the east. But if you were to zoom in on whatever map tool you're using, you would see that there's a lot of islands in between the uh, Greece itself on the, the uh, mainland as well as on the mainland of Turkey. Lots of islands in the Aegean Sea. The question was, who owned those? So Greece started out by colonizing those islands for its inhabitants. And the more islands that it was able to secure, it strengthened Greek power and influence. And you might give, take your hat off to them and a nod to them saying, good job on that. But again, consider this, how might the Persians have felt about that? Hence the reason that they were looking to expand west to what to the west while Greece was looking to expand to the east. No surprise that eventually they were going to conflict. From here, we also see this lyric age is the rise of Sparta, an oligarchy that expanded through conquest and fear. It was a truly militaristic state, a state that clearly looking back, very few people would ever subscribe to in order to want to join or to live in. But I'm stressing Sparta's existence because not every city-state was a pure peace and clear, easy objectives. Not at all. The other city-state opposite that, of course, is going to be Athens. And Athens, I'll spend just a few more minutes on here, because Athens is where we get the seeds from Cleisthenes, who existed in 508 B, lived in 508 BC, to come up with this idea of the direct democracy. Please note, though, the word that I said before, democracy. It was a direct one. That is not what we have in the United States. And while you might cringe and say, ah, leave it to us to water down something that worked well for the ancient Athenians, think twice, or as they say, be careful what you wish for. Direct democracy can sound great on the surface. I get that. But think about it. If you're not a direct democracy, then what are we? We're a representative democracy means we don't have the right to go to Washington, D.C. in the well of the Senate or the House floor and speak our minds. Well, you could try, but good luck with that. No, we have our representatives that speak for us, or at least we hope we do. they do. 
But if you look back and say, well, we could have at least tried direct democracy. Again, careful what you wish for. Think about it. Take the state of Illinois, Ohio, Florida, doesn't matter. Can you imagine if we lived in a direct democracy? Anything that the United States government needed to consider, debate on, pass legislation on, if we're a direct democracy, that means we have to get our rear ends to D.C. to not only hear those issues, research them, hear the debates, and then give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down vote. And you might say, hey, you know what, Chris, I'm, I, I'm self-employed. I've got some time. I can do that. Okay, well, careful, because that's not your only organization. you got to keep your ear to the ground on. You're also going to have to look at your own state house, your state capital. For the Senate and the House of Representatives, that doesn't exist. You are your own representative. So you got to make sure you get to your state capital when issues are coming up to vote on. And if you think you still have time for that, how about the county that you live in? You got to make sure you get to those board meetings, the township meetings, the school board meetings. Would you like me to keep going? Because actually would break down from there a city and then even a suburb. So while, again, direct democracy can seem very pure, very innocent, with the population of 5,000 and only the men are voting, it's a lot easier to do then than it ever would be today. Keep in mind, too, something else about ancient Greece a lot of people are not aware of. They had this policy of ostracism. Ostracism, which means, of course, to be exiled was a policy that the ancient Greek, uh, specifically the Athenians, were proud of. The way it worked was very simple. Once a year, all eligible voting males would come to the placa, the town center. I had the opportunity twice to go there. And there they would take a small piece of papyrus, or paper in modern times, and they would write on that sheet the name of an individual who seemed to be the source of a lot of problems whether it be somebody that was argumentative, somebody that was violent, it wouldn't matter. It would be a male, and if that person's name came up the most, they and their, that person and their families would be exiled from ancient Athens for good. Now, you might say, wow, yeah, I guess, of course, that's pretty tough, but how is that democratic? Oh, it's exactly my point. Yes, they, were, they had direct democracy. But as I say, there were some other aspects oftentimes your average history book doesn't discuss. But keep in mind, though, do we have that here in the United States? Ostracism? If you think about it, we do. Look at our elections. In the next presidential election, in this case, it would be the year 2020. Think about it. If Trump doesn't get elected for a second term as those results come in, he doesn't get to ask any questions. He doesn't get to say, well, hold on, let me see who didn't vote for me and see if I can persuade them. No, he's given a limited number of days until January 20th at noon, when his term as the 45th president of the United States expires. That's it. No questions asked. Same with our governors, our senators, our representatives. Right. So in a way, our voting is in some cases like an ostracism. Somebody, as we know, has got to lose. And the person that loses, like those exiled in, in, in Athens, no questions asked. Now, getting back to where they were democratic, they did have what we call relatively fair representation through the assembly. 
The assembly was a bicameral, meaning two-house organization of government. Once again, it's where a future country of Great Britain will get its ideas from, where the United States eventually will adapt from as well. The uh, chamber that had 500 members, the Boule, this was created, that were the council that created bills to be voted on by the Greater Assembly. This would be the uh, body that would receive foreign visitors. It would be the equivalent of our Senate today. The Ecclesia would be the equivalent of our House of Representatives. They had a simple direct vote system where a majority rule would give a bill passed from down from the boule, either an up or a down, a yes or a no vote. Again, as I say, we can see we can see clear examples of that from ancient Athens to modern day Washington, DC, and even our own state houses. The point that I would like to make though, to wrap up all of Athenian democracy, is that there was no need for rebellion or violence as most citizens could speak their mind. They had representation. If you didn't like who was elected, you waited for the next term to come around, just as we have here in the United States. Every presidential election, ladies and gentlemen, is going to have somebody take the oath of office where a significant portion of the population didn't want them up there. It goes without saying. But again, we wait four years, we have our say again something we we adapt clearly and directly from ancient Athens. Ancient Athens also, collectively with the other city-states, had to deal with their menace or nemesis to the east, that being Persia. As I mentioned in the prior podcast, in 490 and 480 BC, Persia did attempt to attack Greece twice. The first time in 490 under Persian ruler Darius I. Obviously, as we know, they were defeated at Marathon. That's where Philippides ran from Marathon to Athens to deliver the great news, 26 miles, hence again the term today, the Marathon, and delivered the news that Athens or Greece collectively was successful. Running 26 miles nonstop, not bad for a 40-year-old, but just to prove that your body needs to be conditioned before it runs 26 miles or today 26.2. Hey, where'd that point two come from? I don't know. Just ask the Queen of England. So the 26.2, yes, even an ancient Athenian 40-year-old man need to be conditioned because after he delivered the news, he dropped dead. Greece was also attempted to be attacked once again 10 years later in 40, 480 BC under the Persian ruler Xerxes I. They would be then defeated at Thermopylae, but the point being that Persia had attacked Greece not once, but twice, failed both times. Okay. So you see, you see the Persian fleet sailing away back to their hometown with their tail between their legs, well, the ships that weren't sunk anyhow. But heading into the future, as a Greek citizen, how do you feel about Persia? Yeah, you, you defeated them twice, but what's lurking in the back of your mind? What might common sense be dictating? If you're thinking that, well, who's to say they're going to do it a third time? Exactly. Some Greek citizens were fearful of that, 
and tried to do something to counter that. While others said, let sleeping dogs lie, the Persians have learned their lessons. And we'll talk more about that in a future podcast. When we come back, though, we're going to get to the end of the classical period in ancient Greece. And we're going to talk about essentially four individuals, the great philosophers I will touch on in the next podcast, Socrates, and then Plato, and then Aristotle. And when we get to Aristotle, I'm going to talk about one significant student of his, a student that by and large, especially because of his size, might not have ever been destined for anything but destined for the future in this case with this individual will be nothing but greatness because that student of Aristotle is truly going to conquer more of the known world than any human being that came before him. And if you're wondering who that individual is, well, I guess I'm out of time. So I'll see you at the next podcast for that one podcast number six. So thank you for listening. Keep in mind, as I say, in the meantime, before we come back to that next podcast, please go to my website, cekinsella.com. You can email me at contact.cekinsella at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or any book recommendations that you're looking for or book recommendations for me. By all means, feel free to let me know. And if you like what was discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. Thank you.